resource allocation for that is really tricky. And really, I call it the shiny new object problem. It looks fantastic. You know, everybody wants to be part of it. Everybody's got an opinion on it, but it doesn't pay the bills uh, because the existing product marketer, well, they've got a product to look after as is. Uh, that's time, that's effort, that's investment. Somebody has to do that. If they don't spend time on that and they focus on a zero revenue product, well, that's a problem. You are listening to This is Product Marketing, brought to you by Product Marketing Hive, a product marketing community that gives back. In this episode, Axel Christetter, the Vice President of Product Marketing at Datasite, shares his experience in evolving from single product to multi-product. Let's dive into it right now. Today, we're happy to have Axel Christetter to be our podcast guest. Axel is an experienced product marketer. Currently, he's the Vice President of Product Marketing at Datasite, a merge and acquisition lifecycle software provider. Welcome to the talk, Axel. Thank you. So great to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with the Product Marketing Hive. Thank you. So let's start it with your product marketing journey. How did you get into product marketing? Yes. You know, my my product marketing journey started, uh, I don't know, about 15 years ago or so. I think um, the the domain is relatively new. The activities have been around for for some time, and really came into it via my initial work in the subscription space, uh, where the uh, product management team was a little bit unsure of you know how to take a uh, product to market from a pricing perspective. They didn't know how to commercialize it, and quickly that turned out it wasn't so much a product problem. It was really the lack of a product marketing capability. So that was with a company called uh, Teleatlas, um, which ended up getting acquired by uh, someone else many, many years ago. And um, and ever since then, I've sort of worked for a, a variety of startups and or um, sort of grown-up type of companies, uh, focusing my specialty sort of 500 to 5,000 employees um, in the respective revenue uh, amount that comes with that. Yeah, that's great. So you have had experience in your company, uh, the data sites, growing from one product to multiple product offerings. Correct. Can you share a little bit more background story with our audience? Like, what was the situation like? Why did you decide to add more offerings? Absolutely. So um, with Datasite, which is, like you said, um, M&A lifecycle provider, yeah. it uh, really emerged out of what's called the virtual data room space. So within um, the M&A community, there is a specific point in time where you look at another company, conduct due diligence. There are many providers who uh, provide software for that. Mm. And um, it's very much deal dependent on how many deals out there in the market as sort of the core uh, value metric that's associated with it. And so for us, it became a natural point of, you know, we keep growing geographical footprint, geographical diversification, more industry focus, and, and, and. But at some point you get to a natural amount of uh, saturation or, or growth limitations. In our case, we had an ongoing innovation around features for our core product offering. And uh, that's on an ongoing basis. And um, we realized that as a first step to uh, keep growing, um, you know, when you have a sort of 150 million plus revenue opportunity, well, you have to enable your platform, your technology stack to be readied for scalable growth. So the first step was really to change from a sort of monolithic technology infrastructure um, to a modern microservice architecture, multi-tenancy, that would enable uh, at some point any type of application to be run on top of it. And then the question is, you know, what is an application? Uh, is it a feature of something existing? How is it sort of uh, put together? But basically, that's when the foundations of a new 
product potential were being established. And um, um, but at some point, from a product marketing perspective, what I always like to do is conduct value chain analysis. And uh, basically meaning you look at the various stages in the value chain, you know, more or less, you have an upstream element and you have a downstream element, uh, or it can be circular in terms of a life cycle. And what core activities do people do across that value chain? And uh, as you then analyze that, there's usually different players, you know, quite often a simple example would be a data provider and then a software provider. So data is an injection element and the software does something with that data. Well, you might be only the software provider. At some point, you're thinking, well, maybe I should have a data product as well. Could be via partnerships, could be via acquisition, or you could uh, uh, build something for yourself. And obviously, the business decision as to what you're going to do depends very much upon you know, what's the addressable market size? What's the business case like? Uh, and of course, you know, you got to talk to your clients in terms of what are they willing to, to do with you in terms of how are they willing to continue their customer journey with you? So client discovery throughout this process is also very uh, critical. Organically, we have to do something. Inorganically, there was desire to do something. And at some point, very quickly, it became obvious that, ah, here's an opportunity, put a number behind it. Uh, you can do your research internally. You can work with external providers as well to help you identify how big some of these market opportunities are. And um, next thing you know, you have a uh, at least two products on your hands. It's not quite a portfolio yet, um, but uh, two two distinct products. Yeah, great. I remember our founder, Prisping Ring, he said product is an arbitrary line you draw around some intellectual properties, then you call it product. How did you distinguish like exactly between you know what is a product and what is a feature? Great question. Um, I think a feature adds value to a product, whereas a product provides standalone value. Um, I have a um, you know heavy uh, pricing background, so I always bring it back in terms of what do uh, users, clients value, and um, there has to be a standalone value for something to be a standalone product, so to speak. So, for example, uh, when you think of of Uber. You know, started off with the um, uh, ride-sharing capabilities, uh, and then they added you know features onto that uh, ride-sharing capability. Drop, pick me up here, drop me off there, and then they added features around that. You know, with um, pay for it this way, pay for it that way. But at some point, um, you start thinking about well, I could carry passengers or I could carry food that way. Uh, next thing you know, from there you had you know Uber Eats that sort of came about. But Uber Eats has nothing to do with the ride sharing. It, it utilizes sort of the same infrastructure and the same approach, but it has a standalone different value. And as a client, sure, uh, I sometimes use Uber Eats, but I also use uh, Uber the cab sharing. It's sort of more of a one client, two ways to engage with me. But the uh, eating part has nothing to do with the taxiing part. I actually kept seeing a lot of people, they, they call those features products. So when you go to their website and go to the product section, there's like 20 things on it. But actually, each individual one should be a feature, belong to a product. So a lot of people could, you know, run into the problems that mistakenly think features could be a product. Yeah. And one of the other sort of um, tests I have is when you turn it into a uh, brand proposition uh, and really try to package things up. Um, a product to me needs to provide a solution to a problem um, and, and you know, a distinct solution to a problem. And unless uh, from a sort of brand perspective, you can say, you know, 
it's the solution to X. And you can research a lot of this now with uh, some of the sort of SEO sophistication that exists out there in terms of what people are searching for. Then maybe it's not a standalone offering and or it's not big enough to be a standalone offering. Um, whereas if the core positioning doesn't change because you added a feature, well, then it just remains a, a feature as opposed to a, a, a new solution to a new problem. Yeah, that's a good approach. So what does the suite of your company look like right now? Yes. Yeah, so in our space, you divide things more or less uh, in three phases. You have pre-due diligence, due diligence, and, and post-due diligence. Um, and so the core of the market is all around that due diligence. That's the peak of the value when you know companies check out one another to see what their revenues are like, what the value of the underlying asset is like. Um, we've decided to move upstream. Um, so we, we've developed more capabilities in the pre-due diligence uh, frame, mostly because uh, the thinking was, what can we do to capture more of the usage and of the demand earlier on in order to make it easier to then capture the due diligence stage, a sort of cash cow uh, that we have of the uh, virtual data product. Um, one of the unique things is also in our case, uh, there's sort of two perspectives. There's a buy side and a sell side in M&A. So there's someone who's wanting to buy a company, another one that's wanting to sell the company, and they both have slightly different perspectives. But so we've decided for both to strengthen the pre-due diligence phase, um, and then for both buy side and the sell side. Um, and uh, you know, there's a little bit of complexity with it in terms of no, this is for the buyer, this is for the seller, um, and you are taken down to the uh, appropriate path. Um, and um, you know, we, we, we looked at uh, what is billable, what is free, um, uh, and you sort of go through all of these uh, all of these choices. And we're, we're working on more now. We're looking at you know that, that post diligence as well. But uh, I might be giving away too many secrets here, so uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's close out that subject. Yeah. So um, as a product marketer, what are the challenges you had uh, during the evolution from single product to multiple products? Yeah, it's um, it's really a fascinating question. I think a lot of you know product marketers are just used to having a responsibility for a single product where you sort of go through what are my feature releases, quarterly, monthly, whatever ends up being, building a story around that. And as you move to uh, the sort of multiple products, well, you still have um, features that, that get released on an ongoing basis for the existing product. But now you also have a prioritized list of features for the new product that gets released. And suddenly they are not complementary anymore. So one product line could be doing something around, hey, here's an analytics upgrade and change. The other one can talk about doing something on the workflow uh, change and upgrade or whatever it is. And what is now the story that that sort of brings those two together from a communication outbound perspective is really quite challenging. And so um, you can do the doing the release list of, hey, this month we released da, 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 and here's a video, watch it go, uh, which is sort of, you know, the tick box. But really what you need to do is, is more think of uh, a category creation uh, and elevating your story from a product story to a brand story. Um, and this is quite challenging to do because, again, that sort of you know, requires a bit of an establishment of a new communication platform. And in, in a matter of practice or you know, practical challenges I came across is, first of all, uh, before you have a product that you can launch, what have you, there is the building and you know, um, 
ideation phase and, and all that sort of pre-launch that comes in. And resource allocation for that is really tricky uh, because the existing product marketer, well, they've got a product to look after as is, which has its growth figures, you know, 25% year on year. So uh, that's time, that's effort, that's investment. Somebody has to do that. If they don't spend time on that and they focus on a zero revenue product, well, that's a problem. So uh, who is going to be uh, focused on that? And really, I call it the shiny new object problem. It looks fantastic. You know, everybody wants to be part of it. Everybody's got an opinion on it, but it doesn't pay the bills. Um, and this happens at all the sort of, uh, I think of five, you know, product release launch stages, planning of a product, aligning the team to make sure that the business case is agreed upon, et cetera, building it, which is, you know, um, you discover things as you start building it, launching it, and then obviously optimizing as you go down the line. And I think as a manager of, of product marketers, there's also the the additional challenge of how do you now organize your team when you have single product, but but heavy features, you might have sort of a product marketer per feature. At some point, this becomes a little bit complicated. You might have now two product marketers per product. You might have a sort of audience approach. Uh, various other options exist as well, but you got to think through, you know, um, how do you then organize it? And then from that also, when you have a team, uh, well, you do still have to transfer the knowledge amongst the team members. So if one person is focused on the existing cash cow product and the other person is focused on the new offering, well, they're probably going after the same buyer. They still need to talk. <laughs> uh, and so that knowledge transfer is, um, is an additional element. Um, speaking of resource allocation, it's not just within product marketing. I've also seen it with uh, the, the the sales organization. Who sells it? What do they get for it? You know, one thing that keeps coming up is how do you train someone for a new product? Because training from a sales perspective means you're spending time internally, which is not time spent in the field, which again has a revenue impact. Uh, so you, you do have to also, you know, bear in mind whether this is going to be standalone uh, sales enablement exercise uh, done ideally in conjunction with sort of ongoing, you know, annual kickoff sessions or what have you. Uh, but these sort of resource allocation challenges uh, keep coming up. Um, if I can just touch on on two other ones as well, uh, which I've seen, and there's tons more, but um, uh, we, we briefly talked about already the naming of, uh, of a new product or where does it sit within, you know, the portfolio situation. Is it a product? Is it a feature? Um, you got to think about your uh, very practical things. How do you call it? Is it existing product equals the new platform? Is it two new product names? What's the logic behind the names? Uh, from there, you also have sort of how do you now construct your collateral? Does uh, collateral website navigation, does one offering lead to the other? Do you keep them separate? Uh, all of these things need to be sort of thought about as well. Um, monetization, pricing. Um, this is always, you know, on the alignment phase causes a lot of a uh, lot of challenges. What is it supposed to do? Is it a loss leader? Meaning you give it away for free because you know once they're hooked, they get to know your service, they get to know your interface. Whatever comes after, they're going to be buying uh, naturally. Now that's a great strategy, but with that then comes the problem that oh, how much cost do you associate with something that doesn't make any money? Um, or do you want to have standalone revenues, which is also very fair game, which means, you know, now suddenly you're looking at not just one acquisition, but two acquisition processes. Uh, so the monetization exercise is a very uh, interesting one as well, especially at the alignment phase. 
So how did you approach pricing strategy when you actually now have multiple products to manage? Um, where you know it's actually different from a single product. Yeah, yeah. So um, great, great question because um, that's that's pricing is quite often where the rubber hits the road, <laughs> um, and and I think you know in most cases you you usually start off by uh, essentially treating it as if it were a standalone net new product, and you try to work out how do people value it. So you know you'd go through. I mean, this is the the um, uh, sort of exercise that I'd be going through. You know what is the offering? You provide a description, uh, wireframes, um, some kind of design. You you interview people off the back of that, doing some qualitative research. Usually six to ten uh, provides you with a good overview as to how uh, people value it. It will provide also anchor reference points. You know, oh yeah, it's like X Y Z um, from a competitive perspective or substitute perspective. Usually, so it provides you a good frame of reference how people think about it. Um, and then you take that into a quantitative research framework. Uh, two things you have to do, uh, really segment your audience. Um, you know, um, the market is uh, car buyers. Uh, that's sort of the market definition. And segment would be women, young people, blue collared, and, and all the sort of segments that exist behind it. And they value things differently. The mother segment, for example, is always very price sensitive to security features, whatever those security features are. Uh, but accordingly, uh, they have a different perception of what value is. Younger people love their sports uh, style vehicles. Um, so hence, you know, you can, you can introduce a different level of price sensitivity. Uh, you obviously have to make this work also with uh, all of the operational systems that you have. So if you go through this exercise, you don't have your your uh, SKU, your stock keeping unit, your metric, um, you know, that sort of is the core of what you need to do. And off the back of that, you can build out your uh, your systems. Uh, you have to think about what does the proposal look like? What does the statement of work look like? And what does the bill look like? If you have those things in place, you can sell the stuff. And it doesn't matter whether it's systematized or manual, but that allows you to be, uh, to be ready. Uh, so much for sort of the single product. And then as you take it to a portfolio level, well, uh, the obvious question comes up, huh, I've got a client, they buy product A from me because they trust me, they want to buy product B as well, uh, but they don't want to sign two separate contracts. What can you do? So, you know, you, you try to figure out how can you jam those, ram those into a single statement of work, um, which forces you to, to think through sort of revenue recognition issues. The next thing you know, you have a, you know, single statement of work. Um, and, and sort of a portfolio of, of offerings. And uh, what I you know, suggest to do for that specifically is uh, when you have things uh, diametrically opposed in terms of, oh, this product is valued at X, another product is valued at Y, you can do these shenanigans of, oh, I'll, I'll, if you pay me 100% on product A, I will discount product B by whatever, 50%. Well, maybe that's not the objective of what product B had. And so uh, overall, it means, you know, you get a sort of 25% discount. Um, but if you do a, an exercise of doing some good conjoint analysis, allowing you to work out how do clients trade off features A, B, and really talking products, here's a product A versus product B, and you got to go a little bit into the various distinctions, then you can work out how you can best present this on a 2B uh, statement of work or, um, or proposal. Um, and obviously, over time, you know, you have the value added information of how do people use it, what's the purchasing data, which then allows you again to, to fine tune, uh, you know, over the course of uh, uh, months and quarters, uh, where the real sort of uh, price sensitivity 
not the research, but the purchase sensitivity lies at to uh, continuously optimize and enhance the uh, the offering. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Those are very, very practical tips. What's the consideration for weighing between marketing the suite versus the individual products? Yeah, yeah. I think um, you, you sort of have three options to think about. Um, one, do you market the suite of products? So you know uh, you focus really on the suite. Um, a little bit like uh, Salesforce, you know, is just a sales cloud. Even though underneath that, I mean, they have they have. They have multiple product portfolios, but if I just focus on the sales cloud product portfolio, they have multiple capabilities within that. Um, or you choose to market the products individually, uh, which is also you know, a very, very popular model. So uh, where you have a general manager per product line, um, which is also, by the way, a nice career track for a product marketer. Or the other option is you market the brand. Um, so you, you, you kind of you know, ignore the fact that it's different suites and you just focus on the, the uh, leading brand that represents it all, um, which is sort of a nice way to, to, to go around uh, some of the possible product non-complementary aspects. Um, and really the choices come down to what's the balance between revenue and cost drivers? Um, and what's the, revenue, what's the balance between your product and your brand story? Um, so. Uh, uh, the, that change of you know product story, feature, functions of this to that is all good and great, but do you have a brand story that is sufficiently powerful to give you that lift from products to brand? That's really tricky to do, and it requires a, a you know cross sort of company wide effort to uh, to get it up there. You had experience building your product marketing teams from scratch a few times, right? So in terms of um, hiring the product marketers. Some people prefer um, subject marketer experts, or some people prefer hiring just somebody probably not good at you know this domain, but a very good at product marketing. So, what's your opinions on this? Great question. Um, so, th- there's a couple of answers. First of all, I don't believe there's a standard recipe of do this, do that. I think you need to look a little bit inside the company in terms of uh, what the you know, current landscape of intellectual properties like of, of human capital. And I always think more of not so much the technical skills of uh, I need one, two, three. When you're starting a team, yes, that is important. So I, I need someone who does, you know, focus specifically industry expertise, for example. Uh, but as you have sort of, I don't know what the right number is, more than sort of five people, my thinking changes a bit from the technical skills to a balance within the team where the knowledge sharing and the sort of collaboration and, and uh, is more beneficial in terms of achieving an output versus the exact technical skill of, you know, expert at competitive intelligence or expert at, at the product side. Um, and you benefit more from having a team that works well together. And I have made, you know, compromises on um, a person having sort of some weaknesses, technical weaknesses in certain areas, but I can see them working really well with the rest of the team, uh, including asking people what the MBTIs are, just to get a to get a sense for whether it's a good uh, complementary match. As I grow, I value that much more so than technical knowledge. Um, also, you got to consider that you don't have to hire externally; you can also hire internally. And usually, people then bring some kind of expertise to the table. But the company, the processes, the culture, what have you. And you can always teach them, you know, what they need to know technically 
Um, I think if uh, all you do is ever hire technical skills, then how does a person acquire those technical skills in the first place? You know, <laughs> there also needs to be an opportunity to learn on the job or knowledge share on the job. Yeah, yeah, great, great tips. We're getting to the end of our time here.、Um, do you have any final thoughts on the topic,、um, the multi-product product marketing? I think for a、um, product marketer who's only ever worked on a single product, it's a logical、uh, next step in their career. And、um, you know, if someone is concerned about stuck only on a single product and sort of keep doing the same thing. Um, see if they can、uh, own more of that sort of portfolio element, and again, could be organic, could be inorganic,、um, but it's kind of a nice, exciting way to、um, continue one's journey, career,、uh, and uh, education uh, within the product marketing realm. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for joining our show today. Thank you, Axel. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to This is Product Marketing, brought to you by Product Marketing Hive, a product marketing community that gives back. Check out our website, productmarketinghive.com, to join our community, meet fellow product marketers, and access free resources, including training, playbooks, templates, and events. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and give a five-star rating on the platform of your choice. See you next time.